and welcome to Regeneratively Speaking, a podcast brought to you by the Wake Forest Institute for Regenerative Medicine in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. I'm Katherine Drinkett. And I'm Joshua Huntsberger. In each episode, we bring you interviews with guest researchers and our institute's faculty covering the latest cutting-edge research on regenerative medicine. Our guest today is Sonia Arison. Ms. Arison is the author of 100 Plus and founder academic advisor and trustee at Singularity University. Welcome, Ms. Arison. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. We know you began your work in public policy with a focus on computer technologies and the Internet. Can you briefly describe how this led to your current work on the technologies advancing longevity? Oh, yes. It's actually kind of a funny story. <laughs> I was, um, you know, I at the time when I came up with the idea for the book, I was working on things like e-commerce, privacy policy, um, telecommunications, and I was writing um, a weekly column. And of course, when you write a column every week, you've always got to come up with something new and it's hard to find topics. And there was one week where I wasn't sure what I was going to write about, and I flipped on the TV, it was late at night, and um, there was a reality, it was at the very start of reality TV. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember, there was a show called The Swan. Mm-hmm. It was a show where they took people who didn't like the way they looked and like helped them lose yeah. weight got them nicer teeth, mm-hmm. um, you know, new clothes, new haircuts, like completely transformed them, liposuction, all that kind of stuff. And so the, at the end of the program, they, were, they looked like completely different people. And, you know, they were always very happy because they had made this huge transformation in their lives. And I flipped on the program sort of halfway through and near the end of the program, I was really struck by the fact that these two individuals, it was a, a man and a woman, were sitting on a bed together crying because they were so happy that they were able to use technology to change themselves. And it kind of hit me at that point that I'm like, I wonder what else you could do. What other kind of technologies are there that people could use to change themselves, to make make themselves better or healthier or different, right? And so that's when I sort of jumped in and started really looking um, for those kind of things. And to my surprise, I found a lot of it. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it was characterized as regenerative medicine, but there was nanotech and different types of biotechs and, and all of this stuff that um, already existed to change the human body. And I was fascinated by that. And th- from there, I sort of went on to get really interested in longevity, and, and thus um, 100 plus the book was born years later. <laughs> yeah. Okay, thank you. Can you draw parallels as to the advances made in computer science with those being made now in regenerative medicine? There are... Um, analogies between the two fields. I mean, just like computers are built on ones and zeros, Mm -hmm. DNA, the the human body is built on ACT and G. And so in that sense, they're similar because there's a code. And, you know, of course, when the first draft of the human genome was sequenced, we finally had, scientists had this blueprint. It It was a code that we could now start looking at and trying to decode. And then, of course, once you can decode something, you can try to rewrite it. And, um, of course, since 2000, since the genome, the first draft was sequenced, I mean, the technology has gotten cheaper and cheaper. And in, fa- in fact, the technology sequence genomes has been moving quicker than Moore's Law. And, you know, we all know that Moore's Law is really fast, and that's why computers have continued to get more powerful and smaller and cheaper and better all the time. And in the world of genomics, that's been happening even faster than Moore's Law. And so, yeah, there are definitely some parallels between the computer industry and, and, and biotech. In your book, you cover humans' quests for longevity. Can you talk about how this quest has changed throughout time 
and how we're now at a point where we can see this as a reality. Right. So when you look back, you know, the beginning chapter of my book was taking a look at how human beings have viewed longevity in, in the past and, and, and our sort of our stories around it. And most of the stories, if you look at our literature, are dystopian. Sort of like, oh, well, we don't want to live longer because then we'd just be evil like vampires. Or we don't want to live longer because then maybe we'd just go crazy and shrivel up like the little people in Gulliver's Travels. Or, um, you know, Dorian Gray became corrupt and, you know, and just died in the end anyway. And, and there, so there's all these, these bad stories and dystopian views around longevity. And I think the reason for that is because it was sort of this psychological crutch where it was like, well, you know what, we can never actually get there. And since it's going to be, it's, since it is impossible for us to really extend our life expectancy and our health, not just life expectancy, but health expectancy, we might as well pretend we don't want it anyway, right? And so th that's what, it, what our literature has looked like. But then it starts to change, and we're now at this point in time where we're starting to gain the tools to allow ourselves to live longer and healthier lives. It seems like regenerative medicine is a big, big part of that, and the fact that, you know, you know, bladders have been grown in the lab and windpipes and all sorts of different parts and other parts are in development right now. We're actually at this point where we're getting closer to having the tools to actually repair ourselves and extend health expectancy and therefore life expectancy. And, you know, I think you're going to start to see more of our stories change and they won't all be so dystopian anymore and we'll start to see maybe not utopian but at least nicer stories surrounding longevity. Could you highlight some of the advances you mention in your book that are allowing humans to live longer and healthier lives? Um, an example that stood out to me in your book was the mother, Claudio Castillo, with tuberculosis, um, whose trachea was damaged um, from the disease and then doctors ended up replacing it, the, the diseased area with a donated windpipe that was seated with Claudia's own cells. Right, and that, you know, of course, I feel like the science chapter of my book was outdated the moment I finished it. Because, of course, that example, which is epic, really. I mean, anybody who has the problem that she had, I mean, she was a young mother with kids, and she, could, she couldn't even walk up the stairs. And this was sort of a, a last-ditch attempt to, for doctors to help her, and they had to use a donated um, trachea from a cadaver. Today, I mean... That doesn't have to happen anymore. Now you now scientists can build a trachea out of nanomaterials. They don't have to rely on dead bodies, right. <laughs> which is very nice. Um, and they can see that with her own stem cells, and and uh, that's been done a number of times around the world for different people. And so that's a huge advance. And it happened within you know from the point that I wrote about Claudia to now. I mean, it's actually been a fairly short period of time. And of course, there's other organs that are being worked on at Wake Forest and other places around the world. And I know for Claudia, in, in the book, you talk about how, you know, 10 days after the procedure, she was released from the hospital and doing well. What impact do you feel or have you seen that, you know, families and society, you know, get from these medical procedures that are helping people live healthier lives now? Well, can you imagine? I mean, she was really at the point where she couldn't do anything because her health was so bad. And then she gets this procedure and suddenly 10 days later, She's starting to feel normal again. I mean, that is real. That is life changing. Absolutely. And you know, I, 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 there's another story in my book where I talk about a football player, Jarvis Green, who his, his knees were his, the cartilage in his knees was, were damaged so badly that he he told me he literally couldn't walk from his car to his front door. 
and it got so bad that he actually got fired from his job, of course, you can't be a football player if you can't run or even walk, right? Um, and then he went and got this treatment done in a clinic in Colorado where they took out his own stem cells, processed them, put them back in, and repaired his cartilage. And then he got re-signed to a new football team and he could continue his life. Wow. And I just remember talking with him on the phone and you know, he said to me, which probably some scientists will find this sort of ironic or something, but he said to me, he's like, you know, we all have guardian angels. Mm -hmm. I mean, he sees this as a miracle that he was, he was not just, they didn't, doctors just didn't just give him drugs to make the pain go away or what, they actually fixed him. Mm -hmm. And that is really a, a new type of thing, a new type of tool that scientists have now that they didn't have before and, and patients are overjoyed when, when they get a chance to use them. In your book, you cover how living longer will impact the economy, environment, religion, and family. I know that we could talk for hours on each of these topics, but could you briefly cover each of these points? Sure. So the economy. When I was doing research for the book, uh, the chapter on economics was actually the chapter where I found the most material. Because economists have actually been pretty interested in longevity and its impact on the economy for quite some time. In fact, Gary Becker's work that he won his Nobel Prize for had, had something to do with this. And so it turns out that as people have been able to live longer and healthier lives, the economy has grown. So there's a strong link between health and wealth. You know, for the longest time, you know, scientists would say, oh, well, of course it makes sense if you're wealthy, then you can be healthy, because if you have money, then you can pay for doctors and all of that. But they didn't really think that much about the other side, which is what the economists were thinking about, is if you can live longer and healthier, you can also be wealthier, because think about it, I mean, if you're healthy, then you can work. If you're not healthy and you're sick, then you have to stay home and people have to take care of you and that costs money and you're not being productive and you're not working. So um, it's, it's pretty clear that health drives wealth, um, as well as the, the other way around, but it's, it's super important to the economy. And that can become a competitive advantage over time, so if you have one country uh, that's a lot healthier than another country that that shows up that shows up in the economic numbers. I'd like to actually sort of talk about the environment and population together sure. because that's usually the first thing that pops into people's heads actually when when they think about oh wow if people could say maybe double their life expectancy roughly and live to like 150 years mm -hmm. what what happens to population? Oh my god, maybe it would spiral out of control, mm -hmm. right? That's the first thing that people tend to think about. And um, that was one of the things I was thinking about when, uh, when I first started to write the book and I did some research and I actually found some scholars at the University of Chicago who had looked at this question. In fact, they went even further than, than I wanted to go. They said, okay, well, we're going to do a little experiment. We're going to take the country of Sweden, and they love to do that because Sweden, of course, has all, a lot of uh, great collection of numbers and facts and things that they can use and, and statistics. And um, they say, okay, well, what if the entire population of Sweden were to become immortal tomorrow? Mm -hmm. Like, never die, right? Not live to 150, not live to, you know, 200 or something. They're just immortal. They never, ever die. What would happen to population? Would it go completely crazy or what would happen? Um, and so they took, you know, the standard models from the UN and World Bank and all of that and plugged in all the numbers, assuming immortality. And what they found was that the population of Sweden would only grow by 22% over a hundred years. Now, you know, that's a decent amount of growth, but it's not nearly as much as you would think it would be, which is somewhat surprising. And so I said, well, I asked them, how could this be? 
And they explained to me that heavy population growth really comes from more births, not from fewer deaths. It's because births are exponential and deaths are not. So when you have children, you have one, two, three, four, five, you can have lots of children and that's what really pushes population explosion. Um, versus when one person doesn't die, it's only one person. So that doesn't grow exponentially and so you don't see the same kind of um, population growth as you, as you might expect to see mm -hmm. if, if people weren't dying at the same rate. So, um, so population still might be a concern, but it's, it's not nearly as bad as so that sort of links to the to the environment question in terms of like, well, will the if there's more people around, say population grows a little bit, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. Doesn't more people mean more trash and more waste and all of that? And I think the answer is yes, but you have to remember that at the same time as technologies are growing and innovating for in the in the biological space, they're also growing in other areas, um, or the same technologies can be used for different things. And so, you know, we're seeing all these new technologies right now for um, managing waste, like turning waste into fuel and um, nanotech to clean up uh, garbage in the ocean and, and all of these um, soak up oil in the ocean, all of these different types of technologies. And so I think that as technologies grow to allow human beings to be healthier for longer periods of time, we'll also see the growth of technologies to keep the earth clean. And of course, if you're living longer, you actually have more incentive to keep the earth clean because sure. it's going to be you who's going to be mm -hmm. breathing the air, not just your children or your grandchildren. So um, I also think that that changes the incentive structure uh, in the long term. Mm -hmm. You know, the chapter on religion in 100 Plus was the most interesting chapter for me personally because the premise I started out with turned out to be wrong. The pr I, I thought that I was going to find that as we live longer, religion becomes less important. That's what I thought I was going to find. I just figured that the further away you got from death, maybe the less you care about God, all right? So I dug in and I, I looked at what happened, you know, the data in re with religion is a little difficult to find and, and, and sort through, but, um, you know, I, and I spent a lot of time doing it and talking to scholars who work in that area, mm -hmm. and it turns out that as life expectancy has extended, religion has not declined. It has in some parts of the world, but there's different explanations. Europe, is, um, Western Europe in particular, is an exception actually, not the rule. Mm -hmm. And religion has actually stayed pretty stable over the course of time, even as our life expectancies have grown. Mm -hmm. And so I was somewhat shocked by that, and I couldn't actually believe it, and so I kept checking and double-checking and looking through the data. Um, and until I came across some, uh, some scholars at the Pew Foundation who had done tons and tons of research on this, and um, they explained to me, they said, well, you know, look, religion is not just about death. It's not just about managing our fear of death. Religion is actually about a lot of different, it's about how do you live your life. It's about what is the purpose of life, what is the meaning of life. And those things, as you gain more life, you actually need more guidance <laughs> in those areas. And so it actually makes it could make sense that as our life expectancy grows, we'll actually need religion more. Maybe different. Maybe religion will have to evolve and, and change, and I think that that will happen. But religion is not going to go away. Not how I assumed it would when I when I first started the research project. So that that was super interesting to me. Very interesting, absolutely. So family gets really interesting in a in a world of longer lived individuals, because in particular as fertility can grow. 
Um, and of course, reproductive technologies seem to be moving faster, actually, than health-extending technologies. So, you know, you can foresee the day in the not-too-distant future where you have 70-year-old mothers. I mean, what we've already seen a 70-year-old woman give birth using donated eggs. Mm -hmm. But at some point, there will be a 70-year-old who gives birth using her own eggs that are, were grown from her banked ovarian tissue or something like that. Um, and so that makes the family of the future look interesting because you could have, you, it makes it really diverse because there's all these different combinations you could have, right? I mean, you could, you could have some people who have children really young and then have a huge break and then have children again when they're older. And so you'd have these siblings with, you know, I don't know, 40, 50 years in between them. And what does that do to the sibling relationship? It's not really a regular sibling relationship. It'd be more like a aunt and, um, you know, niece and that, that kind of thing, maybe. Mm -hmm. um, or you could see people who put off having children until much, much later, and so you, this big group of older parents, much older than we've ever seen before. Um, or, you know, people who have children young, and then their children have children young, and, their ch and then you have these amazing, huge, huge family trees, and, you know, already there's, uh, the world record uh, is seven generations in one family. Wow. Already today. <laughs> Yeah, I, I just wrote an article about it actually, and it's pretty incredible. But you could see that getting even bigger over time. And imagine the family dynamics and the politics. It's like, it's actually frightening to me. <laughs> but some people love it. And, you know, so I think that diversity will, it, the family will just be so diverse in the future, like nothing we've ever seen before. Thank you for covering all of these topics. I know it was a lot to cover, but I think our listeners will really benefit from hearing your perspective on how living longer will impact these various areas. So in your book, you make a reference to a vintage car, mm -hmm. being able to stay in like mint condition because its parts can be replaced. How, how about if we envision a similar scenario with the human body? What about diseases that can't be cured? that impact um, cognitive decline and um, severely impact the person's ability to function independently. Right, I think that's one of, that's the biggest problem with the parts analogy. Mm -hmm. And the reason for making that analogy is because it shows how things could change with the, the sort of low-hanging fruit, if you will, that we've already, we've already got access to the tools to build parts so we're already at this point where it won't be long before we can actually swap out parts, the easy parts. Mm -hmm. You're not going to be swapping out your brain anytime soon. Sure. I mean, that, that really is the snag in all of this, isn't it? Mm -hmm. But that's when, you, that's when I think, I hope anyway, that we can um, rely on other technologies to help uh, repair problems in the brain. You know, it's like Paul Allen, co-founder of Microsoft, has this huge... Uh, brain mapping project in Seattle. The Allen Institute for Brain Science is doing a lot of work, and you know the government here in the U.S. and in Europe, governments are funding brain projects. And so there's a there's a lot of work being done on how to manage those problems. You know, I'm not saying it's going to be easy or that it'll you know happen anytime soon because it probably won't. Those those are definitely some problems. Or I mean, if you talk when I was doing the research on on longevity technologies, I found that there was this uh, divide between scientists in terms of how they wanted to keep people healthier for longer periods of time. There's one camp that wants to repair things, um, like sort of the the vintage car swapping out parts, mm -hmm. all of that. And then there's another camp that just wants to slow down aging. Um, so Cynthia Kenyon from 
UCSF, now she's of course at Calico, Google's um, longevity initiative. Um, she's in that camp where she just wants to slow down aging by manipulating gene sequences. And she's done it in worms, and it's been demonstrated to work in animals. They've actually shown that aging can be slowed down. It's malleable. It's not set in stone. Mm -hmm. And so if you could do some genetic tweaks to an individual to slow down aging in their body, mm -hmm. then you could put off the time at which Alzheimer's or dementia or some other thing would set in. So that's another strategy to manage that until we have a cure or some other way to fix that problem because it is a huge problem. Following up on that statement, what are the current roadblocks facing the field? One of the things I worry about in this area is that, you know, you know one, of the, one of the reasons that things are moving so quickly in some senses, like in the, in the genomic sciences, is because the engineers have gotten involved and, you know, like tissue engineers and then there's, you know, engineers who are working on sequencing technologies and uh, genome reading and writing technologies and all of that and that tends to move fairly quickly. The actual biology part of it does not tend to move quite as quickly and, you know, there's a number of reasons for that. You know, one of, one of the things I worry about and I think that you know, could potentially be fixed if, if we worked on it really hard are um, regulatory roadblocks. Mm -hmm. So like, you know the um, procedure I mentioned earlier that helped the football player regrow sure. his cartilage? Mm -hmm. It was legal when he got it done, but then the FDA made a decision later on that uh, the procedure that they used was actually a drug. So what they did is they took out his own stem cells took them to the lab, modified them, and put them back in his body. And the FDA said that because they modified them in the lab, because they grew more of them, mm -hmm. even though they were still his own cells, sure. that process was a drug. And because it was a drug, it had to be regulated by the FDA. Because the FDA hadn't approved it, they could no longer practice it within the United States. So that effectively shut that down, mm -hmm. even though it was working for a number of people. And it's really too bad. And so they've moved their lab to Costa Rica. I know there's somebody in Germany who does it. I mean, there's people all over the world who are doing this. And it, you know, it's, it's sort of sad because you look at this and you're like, well, okay, so only if you're wealthy and you can afford to get on a plane and go to one of these places can you get access to this type of technology. I mean, you know, I'm not saying that regulation is bad. Regulation is necessary because you have to keep the bad players out. But it should be done in a way that helps move innovation along and, and doesn't just cut it off at the knees, which unfortunately I see that happening a lot, particularly in, in the area of biology. In your book where you read about how Dr. Aubrey de Grey made this provocative claim that the first human to live to a thousand years old may have already been born. Could you comment on the role of young scientists in realizing this dream? You know, I, I think one of the things about Aubrey de Grey, even though he can sound very controversial, is I think he actually does wind up inspiring a number of young people. Because they look at that and they say, they see other people saying, oh, that's way too extreme, it can never happen. And I think young people look at that as a challenge and sort of say, well, maybe it could. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like you older people who think you know everything don't think it could happen, but maybe... I don't know any better, so I'm going to try to make it work. Mm -hmm. An idea is only crazy until the day before it actually happens. Sure. For our audience, what would you like for them to take away from this podcast? And in addition to your book, 100+, Plus, what additional resources would you refer people to learn more about these topics? My book is pretty wide-ranging, so I, I cover a number of different topics. So I cover the economics, the, the social, the environmental impact, the religious, 
um, the literature even and but in the last chapter of the book actually was my end goal my, my purpose for writing it and I wanted people to get excited about this area because I think we're now at this point in history where the tools to allow ourselves to extend health expectancy are here they're just not you know completely developed yet so we're at this point where the possibility is there but we're not quite there yet and I feel like I could be the last generation that might not get access to those technologies right I mean I'm 41 and it's like right now average life expectancy is 80 years old mm -hmm. I don't want to be part of the last generation that only had a life expectancy of 80 years old because at some point that life expectancy is going to radically extend and I want to be at least in the first generation that gets a shot at a healthy 150 years right. or more or whatever it turns out to be mm -hmm. right and but we're not going to get there unless people really work at it unless people work really hard and that means scientists have to work hard regulators have to be helping them you know Governments, private individuals, foundations have to be funding them. Journalists have to be writing about it. I mean, everybody actually has a role to play here. Mm -hmm. But we all have to be working together. And if we don't, then it won't happen. At least not in time for me. <laughs> and you. Right. And everybody listening to this podcast. Right. So it's in everybody's self-interest to, to make this work. Well, thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you for having me. That's all for this episode. Be sure to listen next time for the latest in regenerative medicine. This podcast is a production of Wake Forest Institute for Regenerative Medicine, part of Wake Forest Baptist Medical Center. For more information, visit our website at www.wfirm.org or follow us on Facebook or Twitter at WFIRM News.